All right, well, um, we are in Genesis still, and I was I was going to try to get on to Genesis, uh, well, say some more things about Genesis 1 and then go on to Genesis 2 this morning, but uh, it's kind of looking like I'm going to uh, probably just finish up some thoughts on Genesis 1 tonight, and uh, and that'll be, that'll probably be as far as we get. There's just so much here, and I don't want to... You know, I don't want to try to. I don't want my goal to be to get through material. I want it to be just kind of share my heart and, and some of these things. And so, I don't want to. I don't want to rush through it at all. You know, so um, I, I've just been kind of going back and reading the beginning of Genesis again recently, and and there's just so many. I don't know. You could call them little things. They're they're little in term. They're just like words or phrases. They're little in that sense, but. I don't know. To, to me, there, there's things here in Genesis one that kind of um, help orient us for the reading of the entire Bible. In other words, like if you can kind of grasp some of the things that are being said here, some get some of the, as I sometimes call it, the God's eye view of some of these words, and and really pay attention to, to what He calls things, because that's what He's doing here in this first chapter. He's He's naming things. He's calling things according to how he understands them. And that's really what naming is. You know, you give you give something a name that kind of corresponds with your view of that thing. Even if it's just like a dog, you know, you, you give it a dog, you call it like um I don't know, you call it like fluffy because you think it's fluffy, you know, that's that kind of a dumb example. But but my point is that's kind of what we do when we name things. God was doing that too in Genesis chapter one. He was he starts to give things names, and the names are based on his comprehension of those things. So he didn't just call; he didn't just like see light and call it, uh, I don't know, fluffy, you know, whatever. It's something that just totally, totally doesn't correspond at all to his understanding of that word. He gives he gives names and titles for things that correspond to his to his view, and um, and I think that that if you can if you can kind of get a hold of what God is calling things here in this chapter, then you, what you're getting a hold of is a little bit of a, a piece of his definition or his understanding of these words. And then that that definition is going to serve you at least to point your heart in the, right, in the right direction. You still have to see in the Lord's light. You still have to, you know, the Spirit has to reveal these things and make them real in your heart. But at least it'll point your heart in the right direction and not uh, not have you going off on a wild goose chase trying to figure out what some of these things are, what they refer to, what they mean. And um, and so he, he's, there's there's a number of things here I have in this list in my notes. Uh, night, um, well, he, he calls the light day. He calls the darkness night. Uh, he talks about the land. He talks about the sea. He calls the water sea. He calls the the dry land, earth or land. I'll talk about that later. And and then towards the end of this chapter, he gives us the first pictures of the kingdom of God, which to me is just as you know, most of you know, at least I've been talking about that a lot recently, and it's, it's kind of neat to see the kingdom uh, right here in Genesis chapter 1, and specifically you see the way that the kingdom you see God's perspective of how the kingdom has its increase, how the kingdom grows, um, and so um, I just want to. So I think what it'll probably take most of most of our time tonight, just just looking at some of these words, 
and and then maybe next next time we'll get into Genesis chapter two and look at uh, the creation of man and and then the creation of woman uh, out of man and and some of those incredible pictures that are there. Um, I don't know, I kind of feel like I'm looking forward to talking about just about everything here, but let's start with these things. The first thing I want to mention is this word um, uh, day. Well. And this is something that that actually my brothers talked about recently, at least within the last year or so, a number, uh, several several different times, uh, in a little series he did, but which is really good. I recommend it. But um, he, he says here in verse three that let there be light, and and there was light, and God saw the light that it was good, and God divided the light from the darkness, and He called the light day. He called the light day. Okay, in the darkness he called night. Well, we'll talk about that in a minute. But this is important because before before there ever there ever he before he even created the sun and the moon and the stars, which are the things by which we measure time. Okay, so there was a light. I don't exactly know what that light was, naturally speaking. Um, I mean, I know I think it represents Christ, whether it was a natural light or Christ the light or or you know some people um, you know there's there's a lot of different theories about what if there was a natural represent, representation of light in the very beginning what that light was was it heat was it lightning was it you know things that give off heat whatever I, I mean give off light give off light whatever it doesn't really matter to me what what's important is that it exists here before before God uh, creates the sun the moon and the stars and and so, before there ever was the keeping track of time, he called the light day. Okay, why is that important? Because when God thinks of the word day, what comes to his mind is not a time period. What comes to our mind naturally is a time period. You know, we think of a day, we think of uh, concepts like the last day, or the coming day, or the day of the Lord, or the day of salvation. Immediately, what comes to our mind? Time. A day in the future. A 24-hour time period, or maybe we say it's a, it's a you know, five-day time period, but whatever it is. When we think about the word day, especially related to the day of the Lord, or the promised day, or the day that, that's going to dawn, or whatever. All the, the day that the prophets talk about over and over again, we think about time. But, but what I'm trying to point out here is that before... Th- before there even was a reckoning of, of evenings and mornings, before there even was natural sunrises and sunsets that are uh, you know, marking off natural days, God looked at the light and he called the light day. So let me just say this again, just so maybe it sticks a little bit deeper in case you know, this is the first time you've heard this. When God calls the light day, he's saying, more or less, at least the way that I see it throughout the Bible, that when he is speaking of his day or or a coming day or the dawning of a day or whatever, throughout the remainder of the Bible, from Genesis to Revelation, day is not going to have to do with a coming time period or a present time period or a past time period. Day is going to have to do with a very specific light. It's going to have to do with the presence of light. What is light? 
you know, light is what shows us what is real. That's what light does. And it's really, even if you look it up like in Webster's dictionary, I don't know that we have like an awesome, I mean, maybe, maybe, you know, Einstein and his buddies have, have figured out a way to define light scientifically. But really, I mean, what everyone would understand, a definition that pretty much is probably the only definition that most people would understand, like me, um, what is light? It's something that, it's something created that, that shows us what is real. Well, there's another kind of light, a light that existed before the sun, a light that was a greater light uh, that shows us what is real. And, and by walking in that light, you are living in the day. By seeing with that light, you are, as Jesus says, sons of the day. Or Paul says, we are not of the night, we are of the day. Therefore, walk, you know. Or, or formerly, he says in Ephesians 5, formerly you were darkness, now you are light in the Lord. It's kind of another usage of light, not necessarily day in that verse, but uh, light as something that's obviously talking about the the fulfillment or the the the, the anti-type, the, 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 the actual substance toward, uh, of which all of our natural lights and days speak. Okay? So, that's one thing that's really important, and that'll be more and more important as we go on through the Bible, because you're going you're gonna to start to see um, types and shadows of the day that just they, they're not all over the place there's not millions of them but the, but there is some there, there's lots and especially once you get into the prophets but even before you get into the prophets like you th- I think about Joshua there's a day where the sun rises up to the full um, full you know the, the center of the sky the full what's it called like the full day I guess I'm trying to think of how how Paul says it in like First uh, Corinthians, where he says, or in Philippians one, same thing. He says that uh, he who began a good work and you will uh, bring it to its f- uh, fulfillment or perfection unto the full day of the Lord. Now, what is that talking about? That he's just going to bring it to perfection until a specific time period comes to pass, or has passed, or you know what, what is that? He, he's just going to bring the work of Christ to, you know, he's going to continue working on you until, you know, July fourteenth, two thousand and thirteen, whatever. You know that doesn't even make any sense. Or if you look at that in the past, those people are dead. You know, so however, you know, if we view that the day of the Lord as a natural day and only a natural day, then those those comments of Paul don't really make a whole lot of sense. But if you look at God perfecting a work in your soul until there is a f- the fullness of his light shining, the absence of darkness, the shadows having disappeared, because that's what shadows do at the fullness of day. There's no When the sun is directly above you, there's no shadows. Well, if it's, a spirit, if it's the spiritual reality that corresponds to that natural picture, then it makes a whole lot more sense, at least it does to me, that God is going to perfect what he started in you until the fullness of that day. Well, so you see a picture of that in Joshua. Going back to Joshua, there's this day where the sun reaches the middle of the sky and then it stands still. And while it's standing still, it stays right there. And the result is that Joshua just defeats, destroys, eliminates all the enemies of the Lord. While the sun is while the sun is high up in the sky, it's there's like an extra day uh, 
or an extra 24-hour period of time in that one day while they just defeat their enemies. So the picture I think we're meant to see there is there's a day, that was a prophecy or a type and shadow of a coming day, a day that doesn't doesn't set, a sun that doesn't set, a day that reaches the middle of the sky and never goes away. It's like the new creation, the new Jerusalem that, that's described in Revelation where uh, there's no need of a, um, of a, of a sun because, uh, because the, the lamb is the light of that land, you know, and the sun never sets, the light never goes away. And, and, and all the enemies of the Lord in your soul are destroyed, put away, all the shadows removed, all the darkness taken away in the fullness of that day. And that's what you see in Joshua. But more than just Joshua, I mean, I could give a bunch of different examples. There's lots of pictures about the, the, the importance of the day dawning or a new day or, you know, don't come out of the houses with the blood on the door in Exodus chapter 12 and tell the light of a new day. And there's all these pictures of days that are, are pictures of Christ, uh, Christ uh, becoming that light, that day, the dawning of that heart, the, 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 I'm sorry, the dawning of that day in your heart and and the light, walking in the light of that day, and being sons of the day, and today is the day of salvation. And Hebrews chapter three and four, while there still remains this day, today enter into God's rest. You know, uh, today is that day where we can enter into God. You know, there's just so many stories or pictures, Old Testament, New Testament, that are pointing to the day. And all my my point is that the dumbest thing we can do in the world is to think that the fulfillment of these this word day has to do with a natural time period that comes and goes. That's really unintelligent because right here in Genesis chapter 1, one of the very first verses, God doesn't say he called the first 24 hours day. It says he called the light day. And because of that, we should... There should be this little, even if it's just in our natural mind for now, make a little connection, a little tie there uh, between the word between the word day and a light that God knows. That doesn't have to do with the sun or the moon or the stars because it wasn't even created. Okay, okay, well that's one word. Um, the next word is is night. Uh, it says he called the darkness night. And for some reason, this one's a little bit easier for our, for our natural minds because we don't generally associate night with time, I don't think, like we do day. You know, you think of day, you think of 24 hours, you think of 12 hours, whatever. Night, you, ge- you generally do, I think, associate night with darkness. And, and so I think this one comes a little bit easier to us. But what I wanted to point out here is the order. Um, because right here in the beginning of Genesis and then all throughout the Old Testament – the way that God ordered a a, 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 a day uh, in terms of the time period of a day now um, is night night was always first night then day and that's how it all, all seven times it says that or six times it says that in Genesis 1 it says first was the evening then was the morning the first day first was the evening then was the morning the second day and um, and that order is given to us, and, and, and someone might ask me, well, how did that work before there was the sun, the moon, and the stars? I don't know. I don't know. I don't think it's like, I mean, I think it, maybe maybe there was some kind of a natural, real light and then darkness happening, you know, or darkness then light happening before that, or maybe it's just pictorial language that speaks of um, this pattern that then continues with the sun and the, and the moon, or maybe, uh, you know, I, I don't know. I just, it, it uh, the, the, I think the important thing 
is that the pattern is consistent and it points to a, it, it's a natural thing that we see every single day of our natural lives that points to a spiritual reality. Uh, and why is this order important? Because the the darkness is always first. Okay, it, it was first in Genesis chapter one. You, you know, uh, verse verse. You know. He, Two, he, he said, let there be light, and he, and he separated from the darkness, but the implication there is that the darkness was there before there was light. In fact, it says the earth was dark and void and formless. So um, so first there's darkness, then there's light, and then you see that pattern continue with the creation in the next six days, where you know first the evening, then the morning, then the first day, second day, third day. And then you see it repeating itself again in Israel's history. When did the, the day, the Sabbath begin, for, for instance? When did the Sabbath begin? Did it begin when they woke up on Saturday morning? No, it began when the sun went down on Friday evening. Okay, that was the beginning of the Sabbath. And and that's why Jesus was he ate the Passover he ate the Passover lamb Friday night. It was the Sabbath. It was the beginning of the Sabbath after the sun went down. He was betrayed that same night. He was tried the next morning, you know, falsely or whatever, and crucified all between the time of the night the the, 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 the night to the the beginning of the night of one day and the setting of the sun of the next day, all of it happened on Passover day. On the first, on the on the first day, of that feast or whatever, all that's kind of cool to me, but maybe it's not very interesting right now. So, um, so so the darkness comes first; it comes before the light, and and that that the the night is the time of shadows. The night is the time where all things are governed by the moon. The moon is a reflection of the sun. The moon doesn't give off its own light. The moon is a reflection, you know. Um, and so you, you see this picture of what what happens first. This is true historically, and this is true in your soul, okay? This is true of the creation story. This is true of the old covenant coming into the new. And this is true of what happens in your soul. Darkness is first. That's what I'm trying to tell you. You don't start with light. You don't start neutral. You start dark, Everything starts with darkness, and the best you're going to see in the darkness is a reflection of light, a type and shadow of light, and that's exactly what the the whole Old Covenant was. It was like one long night waiting for the dawning of a new day, which is precisely how the prophets talked about it. You know, even the verses that are quoted in the New Testament, you know, behold, the people who dwell in great darkness, a, a, a light has dawned upon them, those who live in Galilee, you know, the, the prophecy about Jesus coming to Israel, those who live in the whatever of Galilee, behold, a, a great light has shined upon you, and whatever. My, my point is that you can see, not only does natural night in these store in these in these pictures start first and then the day dawns okay but the old covenant the old creation was kind of like this long night of shadows reflections but not the actual dawning of a true day until the resurrection when the substance of the light came when the when the uh when the moon gave way to the sun and you'll notice it's just a little i'll just throw this in there for your consideration when the sun comes up that's not the last you see of the moon uh, a lot of times the moon hangs around for a while when the sun's coming up. Not because it's still really giving off light, but you can still see it. You can see it until it fades away into nothingness. Until the sun, When the sun's bright in the sky, good luck trying to find the moon. But when the sun's just coming up, 
you can still see the moon hanging around. And I just think that's interesting because there's that overlap, that bleeding over in our hearts and in the story of Christ's resurrection. Christ came out from the grave. It was the start of a new day. It was the start of a new light. They were starting to wake up and wake up, O sleeper, rise from the dead. Let the light shine upon you. They were starting to walk in the light. The day was dawning in their hearts. And yet there was not only mixture in their hearts, there was mixture in Israel. There was still a temple a natural temple with natural sacrifices and natural priests and altars and all this stuff going on. And so even though the sun had risen, the moon was lingering around, the reflection of the true light lingered around for about 40 years until the sun vanquished it, until until the sun, the, the, the full brightness of the sun put away even the, uh, uh, even the, the, What's the? Uh, I was going to say residue, but that's not the right word. The residue of the moon. <laughs> that's, uh, I don't know what the word is. Like the the, the remainder of uh, of what what could be seen of the of the moon, the reflection, the shadow. I'm not trying to be cryptic here. This is just. Uh, I'm not trying to like speak in code language or anything. I, I'm just using the language of the of the Bible to try to describe these things. The moon is a reflection. Everyone knows that the moon doesn't generate its own light. It just reflects light. And everyone knows, well, should know, that the Old Covenant wasn't the true light. There were pictures of light in the face of Moses, um, in a fire over the tabernacle. You know, there was a light that God separated from the, from the uh, Egyptians, gave the Israelites light, and the Egyptians, they dwelled in darkness, or gave the Egyptians darkness another time, and, the, and, the, and the, only the uh, Israelites had light in their dwelling places. All of those were pictures of the true light, but but they were all shadows. They were all, they were all reflections. They weren't the substance in itself. And then, a, a different light came. It was a new day. It was the day of the Lord, the Lord's day. What is that? You know, if you ask Christians about that, you're going to get some kind of time reference. Some people say it was well, it was, you know, some this day in the past, or it was this day in the future, or it was this or that or whatever. But if you're trying to make that day natural, then you're still living in the shadows. You're still trying to find the substance. You're trying to you're trying to see the brightness of the sun by looking at the moon. You're never going to find it there. So give it up. So um, okay, I'm totally off my notes here, but uh, yeah, what I kind of get into here is that. So, so first there's a reflection, then there's the light. First there's the darkness. This is how it works in us too. First there's the darkness of the Adamic man. Then there's the light of Christ. Okay. First we have a very old covenant mentality when we start to, start to try to know God. We think about works of the flesh. We think about going here, doing this, not doing that. Do I touch that? Do I go to this place, not go to this place, whatever? Am I allowed to wear this and not wear that? And all this kind of old covenant mindset, and then light begins to come. And then it's not a matter of really what Adam does, but or what you're doing with your body as much as it is who is living inside of you. And that changes everything. It's sure, it affects what you do with your body too, but that's not the substance of it. So the order worked in, in the order you see it in Genesis. You see that order in the history of Israel. You see that order coming in the dawning of the resurrection, with Christ came out of the out of the grave like a sun bursting forth from its. Uh, it's how does it say it? Like the sun comes forth in the morning, like a bridegroom bursting out of his chamber, or something like that. I'm quoting some verse somewhere, but uh, uh, it, it's that's just how it is, and and that's how it works in you. First, we're born in darkness, and the light that is in us is a is, is a is a fallen. It's not only a lesser light; it's a corrupted light because of sin. And so it's a lesser light, it's a dark light, 
it's not a real light. So Jesus says, if the light that is in you is darkness, how great that darkness. And, and so we walk around in this world of shadows with a total natural understanding, but then we're born into the world of light. And spiritual light begins to, just like natural light showed us what was naturally real, spiritual light, which is another way to say the renewing of the mind, the revelation of Christ, the, 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 the mind of Christ working in the body of Christ. I mean, there's lots of ways to say that, but what it comes down to is Christ, who is the light of life, showing us what is spiritually real in such a way that it becomes the reality in which we walk and live and move and have our being. All right, moving on. Um, the next word is the word land. Or in English, see, this is this is kind of uh, something I didn't notice until I started reading the Bible in Spanish because, because in Spanish it's the same way it is in, in Hebrew and Greek where they only have one word um, for both we we have two words land and earth okay and depending on the taste of the translator or the idea of the translator they're going to put the word earth some places and land some places but from Genesis chapter 1 when God separates the waters uh, from the dry land he calls the dry land land or he calls it whatever word it is. The, or you could say he calls it earth, but then you'd have to call the promised land the promised earth because that's the same word in, in Hebrew. When God starts talking about the promised land or, or, or with Israel or taking Abraham to a land that he was going to show him, it's the same word. So that's why I think it all should be translated land. He called the dry land land. And that's the same word that's used when Abraham is brought out of one land and into another. And that's the same word when he promises them a land flowing with milk and honey. And I will fill, as surely as I live, says the Lord, I will fill the land with the glory of the Lord as the waters cover, cover the sea. That word is always translated in our English translations, earth. I will fill the earth with the glory of the Lord. But he didn't mean the earth. He meant the land. He's always had a very specific land in mind. And everything around that specific land, in his perspective, now try to follow me here, from God's perspective, there has been one land in which there was life, and everything around that land was dead. It was sea, it was ocean, in which the breath of life could not remain, it could not live. Okay, so here's the picture we're having right in the beginning. I hope you're following me. Again, I'm not trying to sound cryptic here, but we're talking about types and shadows, and 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 we're using I'm 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 using the language of types and shadows and these things have got to become familiar to us because it's God's language. God spoke. When he used words, words represented things. Okay, and they're consistent. It's not just here they represent this and there they represent that and then it's going to mean something different here. It's the same thing from Genesis to Revelation, especially Revelation, because Revelation is three quarters of it is a quote from the Old Testament and using things like. For instance, in the new creation, it specifically says there is no sea, there is no ocean, because there is no death. There is nothing outside of the land that God has caused uh, to be his habitation. But going back to Genesis now, land is, is the word 
I, I mean, you can call it Earth if you want to, as long as you understand that from Genesis chapter 1, all throughout the, 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 the Pentateuch, and then all throughout the prophets, when he's talking about this promised land, this coming land, this kingdom that's going to be all throughout the land, not throughout the earth, throughout the land, he has a very specific territory in mind. Okay, he doesn't have a natural. Well, in the old covenant, he had a natural territory that was a picture of the spiritual one. But the new covenant isn't about physical, geographical real estate. It's not about natural places. It's not about the Middle East or about, you know, Utah or all these sacred places that people make up, Mecca or whatever. It's about a different. It's about a land that he has separated from the seas, and that's what he says here. If you go on to read, it's like in verse six, seven, eight, something like that. Uh, he he says, uh, oh no, no, I'm sorry, it's a little further down. He says it's in like nine. Yeah, he called the he asked he said for the waters uh, to be gathered together into one place, and the, let the dry land appear. And he called the dry land, which is really just the word dry. He called the dry land. He called the wet water or the ocean or the I don't know exactly how it says it. Uh, he called, yeah, he called the waters seas. Okay, so it, it's like he's saying, the wet stuff, it's sea. The dry stuff, it's land. All right? Now, um, so, 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 so land, from this point on, I'm kind of getting ahead of myself in my, in my, in my brain here, but from this point on in scripture, land is a really important word. And it always has the same connotation. Whether God's talking about the promised land, whether God's talking about uh, the, the land that he's promising to, 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 to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, or the land that he brings Israel out of, out of Egypt and promises them, them, them a land, or whether he's talking about the land that he dwells in and fills with himself, which is your soul. In either case, the land is, is a word that is forever used to speak of a place to live, a place that is inhabitable, a place where people can actually, can, can well, people, him, really, his seed. It's a territory separate from the ocean, separate from the seas, where God establishes his increase. God establishes his seed. Okay? And that's what the promised land is. That's what the land was here in Genesis chapter 1. It's a very specific thing, separate from the ocean, You'll notice that in the land, the, 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 there's creatures that fill both of them. But in the land, the creatures, I think it's three times, are said to have all have the breath of life. The, the ocean, in contrast, is filled with uh, monsters. Is, uh, I think it says sea monsters in the New King James. The actual word there is serpents or dragons. And uh, that's, how, that's what that word means in Hebrew. And... Uh, and so you have these kind of pic- this picture here of two different realms, or, 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 or one that's one that's hospitable, one that's not. One that's full of life, seed, increase. One that's full of death, sea monsters, serpents, dragons, whatever. Two realms. That's what you're. You're, you're he's painting a picture of it. Okay, I'm not saying that like all um, dolphins are evil or anything. You know, this isn't supposed to be understood uh, naturally. It's a picture. It's a picture of two realms. One has life. One is dead. It's a, you could you could call it the land of the living and Sheol in the language of the Psalms, you know, or uh, Hades, you know. You you could call it above and below in the language of Jesus. But what you have here is a, a land where um, it, it, it's a land created for life. 
It's a land created for the breath of God's life. It's a land created to be filled with his glory, to be filled with his seed. This is exactly what your soul ends up being in the new covenant. But in the old covenant, this is what the land of Israel was meant to to picture. And before Israel existed as a land that God was dealing with, the land of the natural creation was the land um, that that God set apart from the seas to bring forth the increase of his seed and his kingdom, which is what you go on to read later in this chapter. That Adam was meant to, we're going to get to this, but to, 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 to fill and subdue and reign. So, um... All right, so when you get to the word seas, uh, from this point on, it's just the opposite than what you see uh, in in the word land. The seas represent a place that is uninhabitable for at least, not for, you know, not for um, sharks and, and giant squids and stuff, but for every creature in which has the, uh, that has the breath of life. Okay, so it's a place that 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 comes to represent death or hostility to life. It's everything outside of the land. It's everything outside of covenant. It's everything outside of God, and therefore, it's used in a very in a very specific way throughout the prophets, throughout the types and shadows, the stories, to to point to death or to point to yeah, usually death or that which is outside of God's covenant. And for that reason, it's also used to talk about the. Um, the uh, the nations or the Gentiles, whatever comes out, whatever arises or exists outside of God's land of life is the ocean of death. Okay, so um, that's why uh, that's why Revelation says that there is no sea in in the new Jerusalem or the new creation. Um, that's why in the very beginning uh, you see that God destroys all things in which was the breath of life with the seas. He, he destroys them with the ocean. He, he swallows them up with death. That's why when Israel is leaving uh, Egypt, they have to walk through, and they do. They, they, they walk right through the sea. It opens up. Death lets them out. And lets them out specifically, you'll notice, it says it like five times right there and like ten times in the Psalms and Prophets. They walked out on dry land. God made dry land a place for them to live, survive, uh, come out, whatever, of death. When Pharaoh tried to uh, walk on dry land, that guy belonged in the sea. That guy was part of the death. That guy was part of that which is outside of covenant. It didn't, he did not go into the blood-covered door. He did not. He had no right trying to get out of death. And, and so death followed him up because that's where he belonged, you know? And, uh, and then you see it again, you know, in, in Jonah and the whale, three days and three nights in the, in the water and the sea represents, Jesus says it represents the, the Son of Man will be three, dead, you know, will be handed over to the Pharisees, crucified, dead, and buried three days and three nights. So there, Jesus himself is talking about the sea uh, as death. Um, Paul, in Second Corinthians chapter 10, says that we were all baptized into the sea when he's talking about New Covenant believers using the picture of, of, of the Red Sea as a baptism into death. What he says in, in uh, Romans chapter 
uh, 6, baptized, we were all baptized into Christ's death, baptized into death. So, um, in, in other places, uh, go back, going back to Revelation, for instance, you see the beast comes out of the sea. This giant beast comes out of the sea, which is an indication of from where the beast is coming from. He's coming from uh, 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 the the somewhere outside of the boundaries of, of, of covenant with God. He's coming from the nations. He's coming from the Gentiles. But then another smaller beast rises up from Israel, rises up from the land, and serves that beast. And there's the, the, the Jews who are refusing their Messiah. Uh, and, and they're joining for a time with the beast that's outside, that's in the, from the sea. And they're both persecuting the, the, the sons uh, of God in Christ. And, and all of that stuff's kind of cool. But... Uh, again, I get off on tangents with this stuff, but you, hopefully you can see that, um, yeah, the, the sea is just, it's just, uh, I'm looking at my notes here to see if there's something I haven't covered here. It's just a place, the land is a place for life and increase and government and God to live in, the breath of life. The sea is a place, doesn't have the breath of life, um, doesn't isn't hospitable for us for for him for you know it's his picture of death and and therefore as you go through as we go throughout the Old Testament we're going to bump into these things over and over and over again and uh, and so um, you know maybe I'll make a reference back to this teaching for people that are new then and say listen if if it sounds weird to you that I'm saying that the sea represents death here in this story um, go back and listen to you know session number five or ten or whatever we're doing right now so. Um, all right. Well, then, just to, uh, to the last thing I want to talk about here is that in verses twenty-six through twenty-eight, um, God says, "Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness." Uh, and I believe the "r" there is is probably. Um, I don't know what else would be except for a reference to the plur- plurality of the Godhead. Father, Son, and Spirit, but it's pretty much what everyone says. Um, let them have so, but here he's tying this image and likeness to a kingdom, okay? Because he says, "Let us make man in our own image, our own likeness," and then the very next thing, "Let them have dominion." Let them have dominion, okay? So part of this likeness that he's he's creating in humanity is a dominion, a kingdom, okay? And he goes on to say, in 28, God blessed them, God said to them, be fruitful and multiply. There's four things I want you to take note of here, okay? Because these are the, these are four descriptive words of how the kingdom of God um, fills your soul. Ultimately, that's what we're getting to. The kingdom of God fills your soul because the seed of God is fruitful and multiply. It multiplies, okay? Where am I here? Be fruitful and multiply. Fill, there's the other, another word, fill the earth. Okay, so multiply, fill, subdue it. There's another one. And then have dominion, or some translations say rule over that creation. Multiply, fill, subdue, rule. All right. Um... Let me take a couple steps back here real quick. We know that Adam is, uh, I don't know if we've got to it yet in this in, in these classes or not, but uh, 
we know that Adam is a picture of Christ. Uh, uh, Paul said it explicitly in, in Romans chapter 5, verse 14. Adam is a type of him who is to come, um, which is what Paul says in, in Romans 5, 14. Um, and then gives a gives some ways where Adam's account is a parallel to Christ's account. I mean, Christ's fulfillment. But not just then. He says it again later in Ephesians uh, 5 where he says, Adam's relationship to Eve is speaking of Christ's relationship to the church. I mean, we, we go through and find a lot of places where that's true. But I'm not trying to establish that right now. We'll get to those things as we get to them, uh, those stories. But the reason I bring it up now is because Adam's dominion over the of, over the natural creation is a picture of Christ's kingdom reign, filling, um, subduing, and filling of a new creation. That's just one of the many ways that God created Adam as a picture of one who is to come. And there's a lot of misunderstanding, I think, about this word. I mean. I've heard so many man-centered versions of this phrase, um, let us create man in our own image and our own likeness. Somehow we turn that phrase around as and make it so that the intention of the statement is is how great man is. Look, man's made in the image and likeness of God. And we and then and then we look at it from the totally opposite perspective and our conclusion is man man must be an awesome creation man must be so high functioning and man we're just like god in so many cool ways that's not the point of that statement it was given to us so that we could see through the shadow and understand something of the substance not so we could focus on the shadow and talk about how great it is you know it's like saying it's like saying my shadow is the image and likeness of me. That's true. You know, there's my shadow on the on the desk next to me, okay? And my shadow is the image and likeness of me. Nobody would say, "Wow, that must mean it's an awesome shadow." <laughs> I mean, it, it, no, the point is that you can you can understand something of the person through the shadow. I mean, the shadow, to say it's in the image and likeness of me, therefore you don't go looking at how looking at how cool the shadow is. You try to look at the shadow as a picture of the the actual cool thing. In this case, me. <laughs> but in, in the in the in the creation of the Adamic uh, man, you're not supposed to just revel in how cool man must be because he was made in the image and likeness of God. You're supposed to try to see God or understand aspects of God by looking through the shadow at the person. I hope you can see the difference there. It's just one of millions of ways that we take a little verse that seems to. You know, speak of how cool we are, and we just focus on it because I don't know how many times this is mentioned in Christian books and commentaries and everything that you know how special and unique and whatever. And the, all of the that's true in some ways. I mean, yeah, we're better than monkeys, I guess. You know, but that's not the point. The point is that we can look through the shadow and see something of the substance, which is exactly what Paul is doing in the New Testament and what we should do too. So. What are we meant to see by looking at Adam? What are we meant to see in the shadow? We're meant to see that the picture of man's relationship with the natural creation is a, is a, is a type and shadow of, of a new man's relationship with a new creation. And, and if we see this as a picture of Christ... Christ, the, 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 the new man, the second man, as it says in 1 Corinthians 15, the last Adam, the second man filling up a new creation 
not an old, not the old, what was the old creation? The old creation was a habitation for a man. And the purpose of that creation was that the man multiply, fill, subdue, and reign in that creation. What's the new creation? It's a habitation for a man. It's you. Or you could say it's the church, or you could say it's a new it's a new creation. Whatever you want to call I mean it's a temple, it's a that he fills, it's a city that he's the light of, it's a whatever. I mean you can use all the language of the Old Testament, but the point is the new creation is something that God makes through the cross and it's created for a habitation for a new man, for his increase, for his government, for his subjection and for his reigning. And and so, if we understand that everything here is a, is a shadow in the likeness and image of the substance, then we can look at this and say, God has a kingdom. And God's kingdom is going to be the fulfillment of this picture. And so, and that's where these two, that's where these four words um, start to be really important. Because when you see what God told Adam and, Adam and Eve to do, the first man in the first creation, then you know even if you don't see it yet with the light that shines in your heart, you can at least know it here that God's intention with the new man and the new creation is what is exactly what he's describing here. Now let me read this again. Let us make man in our own image, our own likeness, and let them have dominion. So the image that they were created to reflect is an image that testifies to him, the us involved there, let us have dominion. Let us have dominion over a new creation. There's another man that I really want to fill up, to multiply according to his kind in you, to fill you up with himself, to subject every unclean, uncircumcised thing in your soul so that your soul becomes the territory of his government. That is the first picture of the kingdom of God starting right here in Genesis chapter 1. And, 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 and to me recently, those of you who know what I've been teaching on recently, that's just, that's just really, really outstanding to me because more and more this whole Bible that I read is about a kingdom. It's about a kingdom of priests. And I just can't shake it the more, the more I find it. I mean, the more I read, the more I find it everywhere. So... Um, you know, and that's that's what the kingdom is here. I just have here the kingdom is is the government of God in a new creation, in a new land that He has created through the cross, not another physical land, not another physical creation. If you, Genesis chapter one talks about the physical creation and man's ruling and reigning over it. Uh, the, the, starting in in, in uh, Joshua uh, through the kings, um, the focus is a is a very specific piece of the natural earth, the land of Israel, same word though in Hebrew, um, that God is doing the same thing with. He's multiplying his seed. He's, get, he's getting rid of the Canaanite seed and the Philistine seed and the Amorite seed and every other kind of seed. He's filling it with his seed and multiplying according to his kind, filling it, subjecting it. It's exactly what jo, uh, Joshua was doing. It's exactly what David was doing, subjecting the land to his government so that Solomon reigned in peace. Okay, well, the new creation isn't another natural creation. It's not another natural Israel. It's a new creation and it's a new Israel. And it's spiritual and it's in your soul. And God is doing in you or seeking to do in you 
the very four words that we read here, the very four things we see in David's government, he is seeking to multiply his seed, fill you with himself, form Christ in you, subject every corner of your soul to his government so that he reigns there without any enemies. And that's the kingdom of God. That's the power that he has to subject all things to himself. That's, that's what Paul describes in 2 Corinthians chapter 10 where he says he's casting down strongholds and tearing down high things that have raised up against the knowledge of God and punishing all disobedience in us and all this stuff. Uh, all disobedience, think about, when you think about punishing disobedience, don't think about spanking you for doing something bad. Think about removing, uh, cutting off flesh that is not aligned with the king, the king of your soul. So uh, let me just finish with this, and guys, I thought I thought this was cool. Uh, this is the purpose that the psalmist talks about in Psalm chapter eight, where he starts to ask the question, "What is man? Why do you even consider man? Why why do you even look upon man?" You know, he starts asking this this question, and the answer to the question is that is is well, he describes the answer to the question, but. It's something that Adam lost, but that Christ regained in a far greater way than Adam ever ever had it. The answer is that, what was man's purpose? God created to crown him with glory and honor, that is to make him a king with glory and honor, to appoint him over the works of his hands and put all things in subjection under his feet. That's the psalm that's in Psalm 8. The, the Hebrew author um, quotes it in he, Hebrews chapter 2. It says, what is man? And he says, blah, 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 blah. But then, then he brings that right into Christ. So man, the natural man, fell short of this purpose. He, he never, in, an, in a natural figurative sense, for a short time, you can see this in Genesis chapter 2, you know, until the fall. In a short time in David's kingdom, you can see this in, in, in first, first and Second Samuel. But the one who really realized, who, the one who really was crowned with glory and honor, appointed over the works of God's hands, and, and all things were put under subjection under his feet, was, was Christ, obviously. He was this new man that brought uh, a new kingdom under his subjection, put all the enemies under his feet in you, and reigns in peace over his new creation. So let me stop with that.